Taxes, tea parties, and trade wars set the stage for the American Revolution, and one young man found himself in the center of it all. Born into a simple but wealthy farming family, James Madison's parents had no idea that their son would grow up to be the fourth president of a country that didn't even exist yet. In this episode, we've got all the tea on the life and death of the final founding father. I'm Scott Parrish, and you're listening to Dying to Eat. Each episode, we'll be focusing on a different country, culture, or case, and exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, facts, and fun stories, then I've got a great show in store for you, so make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Also, if you like funky, cool, outdoor t-shirts, check out our sponsor, Swampy Supply Company at SwampySupply.com. Also, one side note, we are looking for one more sponsor. Send us a message on Instagram if you know a company that would be a good fit and is interested. So we briefly touched on the American Revolution in the Louisiana episode, but today we'll be exploring the story of former President James Madison, a man who was at the forefront of the revolution, and to understand how he got there, we need to go back to the beginning. Britain's ever-tightening reign over their colonies around the world had been creating unease since their beginnings. That unease was easily seen in the American colonies where Britain had been constantly trying to find new ways to extort and control the colonists since the beginning of the 18th century. They began to enact new taxes like the Revenue Act of 1764, better known as the Sugar Act, which was written to pay for Britain's expenses from the Seven Years' War, and the Stamp Act of 1765, a tax imposed on the American colonies that required all printed materials, like magazines and newspapers, to be produced on paper made in Britain, and it all had to have the royal stamp. Taxes like these left most people in the colonies struggling to get by, and many others were completely bankrupted leading to an increase in indentured servitude and slavery. As more and more people suffered under the unfair taxes being forced on them by a king who had never even been to the American colonies, the words no no taxation without representation became a common phrase to hear on the streets. Many outright protested the new taxes, which led the British Parliament to pass the Declaratory Act in response. This law repealed the Stamp Act of 1765, but at the same time declared that Parliament had the same right to pass binding laws over the American colonies as it did to pass laws over Britain, effectively undermining any authority the colonies previously had to govern themselves. Britain didn't just flex on the colonies with taxes, though. They also imposed harsh laws like the Currency Act of 1764 that made it illegal for the American colonies to issue paper money, something they had begun doing to pay for the debts that they had from the Seven Years' War. And then there was the Royal Proclamation of 1763 that forbid colonial settlements beyond the Appalachian Mountains and created the British provinces of Quebec, West Florida, and East Florida. As tensions continued to rise, patriots began meeting in coffee houses, 
which had recently become more popular as taxes were placed on items like tea. The men who met at the coffee houses began laying the groundwork for what they believed would be the best future for the 13 colonies, a future where they were no longer under the thumb of the oppressive British Empire, a future where they had their own government. They began solidifying their ideals and laying the framework that they would later operate under, like the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. But while the revolutionaries worked diligently in their coffee houses, things were about to get a lot worse, and these new conditions would force them to put their plans into action a lot sooner than they thought. On March 5, 1770, an event that would later be known as the Boston Massacre took place, shocking the American colonists to their core. The presence of British troops in Boston had become more and more unwelcome in the eyes of the city's inhabitants, but for the most part, this had all just been talk. But the pot was finally beginning to boil over, and on that day, a group of around 50 citizens attacked a British sentinel. They began to throw snowballs, then stones, and then sticks at this man, forcing Captain Thomas Preston to call for backup but the other soldiers were also attacked by the angry mob. Under attack, the soldiers fired into the crowd, killing three on the spot. A rope maker named Samuel Gray, a mariner named James Caldwell, and a black sailor named Crispus Atuckus, and wounding another eight, to whom Samuel Maverick and Patrick Carr died later of their injuries. The colonists had finally had enough, and they decided to retaliate by hitting the British where it would hurt, right in the tea. On the night of December 16, 1763, Boston Harbor was scheduled to receive three ships, all full of imported British tea. This story may sound familiar to you. The ships arrived right on time, but before the officials in the harbor could check the stock and hand over the tax money, a group of Bostonians secretly sprang into action. They disguised themselves as Native Americans to avoid identification. They stormed the ships and threw a total of four, excuse me, a total of 342 chests filled to the brim with bricks of tea into the dark waters. That might seem kind of petty, but it was actually a huge blow to the British. To put it in perspective, if you convert the cost of the tea they dumped into the water into modern money, it will total more than $750,000. It was a risky move, but it turned out to be worth it for the colonists because not a single one of the British East India Company chest of tea reached its destination in the 13 colonies. The night of the Boston Tea Party led to the creation of the Intolerable Acts by the British Parliament in 1774. These included the Boston Port Act, which forbid any ships from using the Boston Harbor, the Administration of Justice Act, which allowed the British soldiers to not only be tried in Britain, the Massachusetts Government Act, which put restrictions on the right to hold town meetings, and the Quartering Act, 
which allowed British soldiers to stay in the homes of American colonists without their consent and required the colonists to feed the soldiers without demanding payment. All four of these intolerable acts were considered to be, well, intolerable by the American colonists who began the widespread boycott of all British goods. Tensions continued to rise in 1775. The colonists waited with bated breath as George Washington was appointed to create and lead the Continental Army and the American colonies began preparing for a war with Britain. In 1775, it is considered to be one of the most important years shaping the upcoming revolution as it was the same year Patrick Henry gave his famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech and Paul Revere took his famous midnight ride across the countryside alerting all around that the British are coming, the British are coming. The war had finally begun and both sides began making all-out attacks and seeing other major gains and losses during the beginning days of the war. As the American Revolution began to make headway, the Continental Congress signed the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776, finally putting into writing a belief that a lot of colonists already held, that the 13 American colonies, separated by an ocean from the British Empire, should no longer be under its rule. This day, now known as Independence Day, marked the official beginning of the history of the United States of America. But even if the colonies said that they were independent, that didn't mean that the Brit British recognized their independence. On July 5, 1776, the British government sent General Howe and his brother, Admiral Lord Howe, to New York. Instead of coming with peace terms, the Howe brothers arrived in New York to accept the surrender of the new country and issue pardons for the leaders. When the Howes realized that their peace efforts weren't getting them anywhere, they decided to use force. Just like a scene in a movie, though, Washington had already seen through them and had anticipated Britain's plan from the beginning. Before the Howes had even left for New York, he had already fortified the city, but his position was far from ideal. His left flank was thrown across the East River, while the remainder of his lines fronted the Hudson River, making them open to a combined naval ground attack. Howe managed to easily not only drive Washington out of New York, but also force everyone from Manhattan Island. Howe then followed Washington to Brooklyn, where the future president managed to skillfully evacuate his army to Manhattan under the cover of fog. Different battles like this one continued to occur throughout the Revolutionary War until, until the fall of 1781 when the American and British troops fought the last major battle of the Revolutionary War in Yorktown, Virginia. The battle ended in Britain's loss when 9,000 British soldiers were captured during the Siege of Yorktown. When news of their defeat at the hands of the combined power of the Americans and the French armies reached them, British public support for the war quickly evaporated and England eventually agreed to begin a peace negotiation with the Continental Congress that ultimately ended the Revolutionary War. But peace negotiations stalled until 
1782 as England continued to deny the independence of the United States. Finally, though, with the election of the new pro-American Parliament, the negotiations finally came to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Paris in 1783. After the war ended, the official U.S. Constitution was finally signed in 1787 and was officially adopted by all the states in 1788. The war was won, but there was still a lot of work left to do, and one man who had been there from the beginning continued to oversee and contribute to the construction of America as we know today. That was James Madison. James Madison was born in Virginia in March of 1751 when anti-British sentiment had already taken a firm hold throughout the American colonies. His family were relatively wealthy plantation owners, but he was reportedly often sick as a child, and there was a series of smallpox outbreaks in Virginia at the time, so he was often kept sheltered by his mother's side, isolated from rest of the world. There weren't many records of the specifics of Madison's early life, but one thing that has survived are his father's meticulous financial records, which included periodic payments to tutors and teachers over the years, and many historians believe that these payments indicate that Madison's parents had invested in his education from a very early age. Whatever the specifics were, Madison attended the College of New Jersey, now known as Princeton University, as a young man where he did really well in his classes, showing a particular interest in philosophy and in politics. He graduated in September of 1771 when he was 20 years old, and he was supposed to head back home to start looking for work, but Madison's thirst for knowledge was far from quenched. He decided to stay at the college for an extra two years and became the first ever grad student at Princeton. He finally returned home in 1773 and immediately started making friends in the local political scene. This was basically the height of the revolutionary movement, and as a young man fresh out of university, Madison had that classic bright-eyed optimism and drive to change the world as we still recognize in our young people today. That There couldn't have been a better time for him to get involved in politics, and he quickly immersed himself in the forefront of the revolution. In December of 1774, Madison joined the Orange County, Virginia Committee of Safety, which was responsible for overseeing the local militias, and they prepared for the War of Independence. He was really passionate about his work with the committee and personally invested a lot of time in helping build up the strength of the local county militias. Two years later, in 1776, he was elected to join the Virginia Convention, a group that was responsible for creating Virginia's first constitution, the Virginia Declaration of Rights. This was just months before the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia. In October of the same year, he became a founding member of the newly convened Virginia House of Delegates, where he met Thomas Jefferson for the first time and sparked a lifelong friendship. The next year, he ran for re-election, but he lost the race because he refused to take part in a long-standing Virginian tradition. Traditionally, candidates in any kind of governmental race would treat the local voters to whiskey ahead of the election to show goodwill and a chance to get together in person and discuss politics. 
Madison could easily afford to do this, but he reportedly thought the practice felt too much like buying votes, so he refused on moral grounds. I've really got to give it up to him. I like whiskey, but I, I like that moral stance even better. Regardless of his noble intentions, the voters thought this move made him look like a stingy jerk, so they elected his opponent instead. Despite this setback, he continued participating in local political scene until December of 1779, when he was then elected to a three-year term in the newly formed Continental Congress in Philadelphia. There, he worked to help build up the early foundations of our government for several years. In 1783, he went back to his home in Montpelier to study law and agriculture, hoping to make his family plantation more profitable, but neither of these pursuits really panned out during the following year, so in 1784, he resumed his position in the Virginia House of Delegates, where he served for another two years. He returned to Philadelphia in May of 1787 to present a document called the Virginia Plan at the Const Constitutional convention, and this document would go on to become one of the building blocks for the United States Constitution. Later that summer, he actually helped draft the Constitution itself. Later that year, he wrote the famous Federalist Papers alongside of our favorite rap time-traveling Alexander Hamilton and their lesser-known colleague, John Jay. In case you haven't brushed up on your American history lately, the Federalist Papers were a series of 85 essays that were collectively written by a trio, by the trio, to convince the American people to ratify the Constitution. In 1789, he was elected to the House of Representatives, where he served until 1797. During that time, he was as passionate and driven as ever, founding the Democratic Republican Party along with Thomas Jefferson in 1791. The friendship between the two grew even stronger, and when Jefferson was elected to be president in 1801, he appointed Madison as his Secretary of State. He held this position until 1808, when he was elected to succeed Jefferson as the fourth president of the United States. Even though the Revolutionary War had been won, Britain had continued to be a thorn in the side of the newly formed American government from the beginning. They couldn't directly tax the Americans anymore, but they could still enact trade embargoes or impose taxes on American goods that were imported into Britain, which would cause the British consumers to stop buying the goods. And that's exactly what they did, along with a whole host of other shenanigans that we don't even have time to get into tonight. Suffice to say, there's still a lot of tension between Britain and the U.S., and at the end of his first term as president, Madison declared war on Britain. This later became known as the War of 1812, and it really wasn't pretty. The war lasted for three years, and ultimately not much was achieved on either side. It, be it came to an end in 1815 when Madison and the British Parliament signed a peace treaty where both, agrees, both sides agreed to go back to their pre-war status quo. After a tumultuous second term, Madison finally retired to his beloved home, Montpelier, but even though he was no longer an active participant in government himself, he continued to be an invaluable advisor for his colleagues, friends, and successors. He also didn't stop working in his retirement. Instead, he turned his focus on a new project. In 1817 to 1825, he was busy helping to found the University of Virginia, once again working alongside his buddy, Thomas Jefferson. 
He served as a lead member of the university board until Jefferson's death in 1826 when he took over Jefferson's role as the head of the university. Near the end of his life, James Madison was often confined to his bed to his ongoing, due to his ongoing health issues, but he continued to work from his bed, keeping himself informed on all of the current political issues. He wrote many of the letters and published a series of essays during this period, a lot of which you can find republished online. In fact, James Madison knew that his remaining time was limited, and he went to great lengths to preserve as much of his part of history as he possibly could. He spent quite a bit of effort contacting the families of his old colleagues like Thomas Jefferson so that he could get back letters he had sent to them. He collected as many of these old letters as possible and sent them off to be cataloged by the Library of Congress. In April of 1830, a historian named Jared Sparks spent five days at Madison's home in Montpelier, where the former president regaled Sparks with funny and interesting tales from his life and career and gave a lot of context to the revolution in the early years of America. Madison continued working for the university from his bed until the winter of 1835, when he was plagued by fever and fatigue. By spring, he was so short on breath that he had difficulty speaking for long periods of time, and his condition just got worse. He couldn't even keep his hands steady enough to write. One of his final visitors was Charles J. Ingersoll, an old war buddy from Madison back during the War of 1812. Ingersoll visited Madison in May of 1836, and when he arrived at Montpelier, Dolly greeted him with a request. She explained James' condition and asked Ingersoll to try to do most of the talking during their visit so it just wouldn't tire Madison out too much. Ingersoll tried to comply with Dolly's request, but apparently James had other plans. As Ingersoll later reported, Madison had been determined to talk his ear off, reminiscing about the good old days. According to Ingersoll's account of the visit, his old friend was as bright as ever. His intelligence, recollections, discriminations, and philosophy, philosophy all delightfully instructive. Man, that's a great way to describe a guy. I like that. One of Ingersoll's final remarks about Madison was this, a pure, brighter, juster spirit has seldom existed. Madison knew that the end was near, and he begged his wife to be composed, if not cheerful. His personal doctor had moved to another town to run his booming private practice, but when he was called back to take care of the ailing Madison that summer, he came straight away. He arrived at the house and entered the bedroom. James offered him some sherry that had re recently been delivered. It's said that the president always had this ability to try to look for a silver lining. And at this time, he injected his own dad joke here. He told the doctor, I always talk better laying down. Now, that's pretty funny. The two each had a glass of sherry, but James was so sick that he told his doctor he couldn't even taste it. He asked the doctor to describe it to him, and the doctor assured him that it was of the first chop. The doctor tried to keep the conversation light and cheerful, but he could already see that there was nothing more he could do for Madison at this point aside from keeping him company. A friend of Madison's, Professor George Tucker, 
had just finished writing a, bio bi a biography. Look at this. I can't even say simple words anymore. So he, had, he was writing this biography of Madison's former colleague, Abraham Lincoln. We all know who that guy is. And he dedicated the book to Madison, the final founding father. This was one of the last things James Madison ever read. And he spent all of his June 27th pouring over it. Like I said, he was too weak to write at this point, but he dictated a message of thanks to Tucker for dedicating the book to him, and he praised the work that had gone into writing it. He also included some personal sentiments in a letter, including a summary of his friendship with Jefferson as a sincere and steadfast cooperation in promoting such a reconstruction of our political system as would provide for the permanent liberty and happiness of the United States. God, he was really one patriotic dude. According to one historian, the trembling signature, barely legible and tumbling off the side of the page, was the last mark of Madison's pen, made about 13 hours before his decease. Madison died on the morning of June 28, 1836, at the age of 85. His butler, Jennings, came in that morning to shave Madison's face as he had done every day for the past 16 years. Suki, a maid who had served the family for almost 70 years, brought in his breakfast afterwards, just like she did every morning. And Nellie Willis, Madison's niece, came to visit her uncle while he ate his final meal. It was during this breakfast, as he struggled to swallow the food before him, that he had a heart attack and met his final end. Everyone around Madison had been hoping that he would make it another week so he could die on July 4th, the 60th anniversary of the independence. Former Presidents Adams and Jefferson had both passed away on the 50th anniversary, and Monroe had died on the 55th anniversary. So everyone was hoping that Madison would continue the tradition, but it just wasn't going to be. He'd been offered stimulants to help him make it, those last few days until the fourth, but he turned them down. He was just he was just ready to go. Madison was buried in the family cemetery at Montpelier, and his obituary solemnly read, It does not appear that Mr. Madison suffered from illness. It was a gradual postation of vital powers. His mind at time was more than ordinarily clear and luminous, and when roused by the conversation of his friends, was cheerful to an extraordinary degree. That excellent and exalted woman, Mrs. Madison, never left him for a moment, but cheered him to the last with those friendly attentions for which she has always been remarkable. His remains were interred at the family vault at Montpelier on the 30th of June, amid the tears of an affectionate family and soaring neighborhood. Wow, what a life. So, there's no question that James Madison accomplished a lot in his lifetime, but he would have been the first to tell you that he didn't do it all by himself. At his side for over 40 years was the love of his life, a woman named Dolly Madison. Of course, she wasn't always Mrs. Madison. Before she met the future president, she was Dolly Dandling Payne. Dolly Payne was born May 20th, 1768 in the uh, North Carolina colony. Like James, her parents were plantation owners that had properties in both Virginia and North Carolina. 
but they struggled to stay afloat despite her mother's high-class background. The Payne family were Quakers, and when Dolly was a kid, the Quaker church was starting to become more liberal. So they started preaching against slavery and opulence, instead placing more emphasis on value of the work that you could do with your own two hands. Although the Paynes weren't the first to fall in line with the church's new policies, they did eventually sell their plantations when Dolly was 15. They moved to Philadelphia, where Dolly's father became a starch maker. She lived with the family until 1790, when she married a successful young um, uh, attorney named John Todd. The pair had two sons together, but just three years after their wedding, a yellow fever outbreak spread through Philadelphia like wildfire. Among many victims were John Todd and their newborn son, along with both of John's parents. John had left everything to his wife and his will, but after his death, his brother stepped in and refused to give her any of the money and attempted to keep it all for himself. She was eventually able to sue him for the inheritance, but it was really messy, and it was just a horrible situation all the way around. Eleven months after this horrific tragedy left her a struggling widow, things began looking up for Dolly as she celebrated her second marriage, this time to no other than James Madison. He was serving in the House of Representatives at this point, and his success pulled Dolly and her two children out of poverty and into the limelight. That wasn't the only reason for the marriage. By all accounts, the two were madly in love. When James was appointed as Jefferson's Secretary of State, Dolly, her sister Anna, and her youngest son all moved to Washington, D.C. with him to a house on F Street that she had picked out. Being the charming and practical woman that she was, she knew that having a good place to entertain would be essential to James' success in the Capitol. While her husband was serving as the Secretary of State, Dolly would often keep the wives of other politicians company, and she frequently proved herself to be an invaluable asset when it came to making the arrangements for the various celebrations and ceremonies that were held at the White House. In fact, a year after the White House was built, Dolly was there working alongside a popular architect to design and furnish the interior, and much of her influence can still be seen inside these iconic walls. Aside from her decorating skills, Dolly was also known as an incredibly charming and friendly person, and she quickly developed close relationships with the wives of many of the other important politicians, including the wives of foreign diplomats who came to the White House on official business. Seven years after their wedding, James became President of the United States, and Dolly became the First Lady. And that's when Miss Madison really got her chance to shine. Now, there's a lot of myths surrounding Dolly Madison because she's considered to be a living legend at the time. But the woman herself was more interesting than any of the tales that outlived her and survived to the age of the Internet. For example, one of the first fun facts you might come across when you Google Dolly Madison is that she was the first person to serve ice cream in the White House. And these articles often make it sound like ice cream was too frivolous for the previous presidents and their first ladies. But that Dolly, she was this cool new first lady who was willing to break rules and make sure everyone had a good time. And this certainly was possible because Dolly had a hand in the first ice cream that was served in the White House. 
Since I already mentioned earlier, the Madisons moved to D.C. not long after the White House was built, when James became Jefferson's Secretary of State. They were pretty much there from the beginning of the building's history, so there's no actual proof that Jefferson and his wife ever had ice cream in the year before the Madisons joined them in D.C. But whether or not she was the first, the more interesting part of this story is how Dolly was so famous for her charming personality and the skills as a hostess that no one could even question it. Especially because one of the things Dolly became known for during her time as First Lady was hosting ice cream socials. No small feat during a time before freezers were invented, you know? Another interesting myth about Dolly is the tale of her heroic patriotism during the War of 1812. To be specific, the myth is that when the British invaded and the Madisons were forced to flee the White House, Dolly ran out of the house with nothing but a prize painting of George Washington. In reality, this painting was taller than she was and probably weighed as much as she did too. Not to mention it was mounted so high up on the wall she would have to have a ladder to get it. Even though she didn't run out of the burning White House clutching a portrait of the main character at the climax of a Michael Bay movie, Dolly did save that painting. At the risk of her own safety and against the warnings of everyone around her, Dolly sent for two men who could carry the painting for her, and she insisted on waiting next to it until she was positive that they were actually going to rescue it. When they got there, the painting actually turned out to be heavy and even for the two of them, so she ordered them to break the canvas out of the frame, determined to save it by whatever means were necessary. Dolly was so beloved to the American people and so respected by the members of the American government that she is the only First Lady to ever been granted an honorary seat on the floor of the Congress. And if you're looking for a fun, true fact about Dolly, she was also the first American to ever respond to a telegraph message. Hmm. Might have to save that. That's a good bit of knowledge there. So, speaking of telegrams, I've just received a message that it's time for this week's recipe. This one is very special to me, as my grandmother Butler would make it for me when I was in the military. It's actually called Dolly Madison's. There's nothing better than receiving a care package while we were deployed in the middle of nowhere and find these delicious treats inside. More than once, I sat on the ground, leaned against my rucksack in the sun or the rain or the snow, and split it these gooey clumps of goodness with my team. Peace be to the great cook in the heaven. While my creation is slightly modified to my cooking style, I hope I'm bringing new fans and appreciation to the recipes I prepare in your memory. With that said, let's get cooking because I'm dying to eat some Dolly Madison's. For this recipe, we'll need a package of your favorite graham crackers, a stick of butter, a cup of shredded sweetened coconut flakes, a half cup of crushed pecans, a cup and half of dark chocolate morsels, a 14 ounce can of sweetened condensed milk, and about four ounces of caramel topping. Personally, I like to use Smucker's. Preheat your oven to 350 degrees, and while it's heating up, we'll start making the crust. Melt your butter and crush the graham crackers. Mix them together in a bowl until it looks like, you know, dry, crumbly dough. 
Press the mixture evenly in the bottom of a pie pan or maybe even a 5x7 baking pan if you'd prefer that shape. Pour the caramel topping over the crust and top it with an even layer of shredded coconut flakes. Now we'll do the same thing with the dark chocolate morsels. I like to use the 53% cacao because it cuts some of the sweetness a little bit and it adds a nice balance of flavors. It's normally really easy to find in your baking aisle of your local grocery store. Next, let's add a layer of crushed pecans and top it off by pouring the condensed milk evenly over the whole thing. Go ahead and pop that into the oven and let it bake for 30 minutes. When it's done, give it time to cool down and set and then cut it up into squares uh, if you're using the baking pan or into thin slices if you're using the pie pan. Grab yourself a big glass of milk hot cup of coffee, or a bowl of your favorite ice cream, and dig in. I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank Matthew Dodell of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for listening to Dying to Eat. I hope you enjoyed that Viking chicken stew. This show is made possible by listeners like you, and I really, really appreciate your support. If y'all like what you've heard, and you want to hear more, look out for new episodes every week. We drop them on Sunday evenings on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. So, until next time, stay lively.